and welcome to Macro Matters, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen Standard Investments. My name is Stephanie Kelly, and together with my co-host Paul Diggle and Luke Bartholomew, we guide you through the macro issues front of mind for investors. And this week we're dealing with the climate change report that it seems was heard around the world, a report that predicts an even more challenging outlook for businesses and economies as climate change realities really start to set in. So to talk about what this report means for investors, I'm glad to be joined by my colleagues who are really working at the forefront of climate change at Aberdeen Standard Investments. So Jeremy Lawson, Chief Economist and Head of the Research Institute, Eva Cairns, our Head of Climate Change, and Anna Moss, Climate Change Scenario Analyst. Thank you all so much for joining. So we're gonna kick off today, maybe just by talking about this report that got splashed all across news media around the world last week. But for investors who aren't super plugged in to the climate policy world, maybe let's kick off Anna by talking about what is this IPCC, which is the body that produced this report, and what was the point of the report? Yes, so the um, IPCC, or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is the UN body that was set up to assess and evaluate the science around climate change. The reports it publishes provide the key scientific information that governments typically use to develop their own climate-related policies. Um, The process involves hundreds of scientists across the globe evaluating the latest relevant literature on the causes of climate change, in the case of this report, its effects and potential strategies. And the key findings are then published as the IPCC assessment reports. So these reports are split between three working groups and it's the report by the physical science group that has recently been published and which we're discussing today. The other two working group reports um, are due to be published next year, one on the impacts of climate change and adaptation, and the other on mitigation of of climate change. Um, However, interestingly, a a draft of the impact report um, has been leaked by scientists concerned that the process of the review and revision will water down its stark warnings too much. And I think that the urgency expressed in this science report we're discussing today is all the more significant given that it's been through that established process whereby governments get to review and amend that language um, in the IPCC report. Ah, interesting. So in some ways, this has already been through the sausage maker and it's still quite a, a stark and surprising kind of set of results. So maybe let's talk then about why this created such a stir. So maybe Jeremy, starting off with you, what are the kind of key headlines from the report? I think what it's doing is drawing together analysis and conclusions that have been anticipated for some time. I think that the nature of the, uh, how would I put it, the, uh, the concern within the investment community is the way that um, in the last few years, there's been an enormous amount of resources devoted to the idea that there was an alignment between three things. So one was the, the, the objective of limiting temperature increases above pre-industrial levels to one and a half degrees, that objective being embedded in the Paris Agreement as the strongest commitment within it. 
and and the idea that those two things were consistent with achieving net zero emissions by 2050. And so then there's been a whole range of activities within the investment community amongst asset managers, amongst asset owners, about how to align these things in practice within financial flows. Where this report creates the challenge is that it makes it clear that probabilistically that temperature marker is going to be hit at least a decade earlier than 2050, right? So in a sense, even a net zero 2050 type of pathway is likely no longer compatible with a one and a half degree scenario that doesn't involve overshooting, that is exceeding one and a half degrees and then generating such large negative emissions in the future that you effectively then bring back to be compatible with that particular objective. So what I think it's starting to do is forcing everybody in this community to be thinking, okay, so then how are objectives going to have to be recast? Is our language going to have to be recast because we can't use these phrases as though they're interchangeable anymore because the science has moved on. Now, keep in mind when you're thinking about the science is that this is drawn together from peer-reviewed research that's been accumulated since the last IPCC report, right? And so many of this was already in the public domain, but what's unique is about the way that that is brought together to deliver these conclusions through the, you know, through the, through the report of, the, of working group one. Um, um, but still, I think that the investment community is being operating almost within the sense of complacency around these things, not just because it was already going to be hard to get to, say, a net zero emissions pathway by 2050, but now even that pathway may not be sufficient to achieve the temperature objectives that have been set out in the Paris Agreement. Right, absolutely. So I think we'll get into quite a lot of that, and I'm keen that we really do dig into what is what can investors do in light of this new information? But maybe, Eve, I might draw on you as well, given particularly your role as, as head of climate change. Aside from that, you know, point about reaching one and a half degrees or even two degrees, kind of slipping beyond reach, were there other key headlines in the report that you were particularly keen to flag? Um, yes, absolutely. I think just highlighting the physical impacts that we can expect, even in the lowest emission scenario, as Jeremy was saying. You know, that one and a half degrees threshold already been reached um, in 2040, impacting really every region on the planet um, and, uh, and being irreversible and the tipping points that were being highlighted. It's, it's already happening today when we look around us and we need to be prepared for these physical impacts and understand from an investor's perspective, obviously, how they will impact um, the, our investments across different regions. Um, and any adaptation actions that are being taken to, 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 to limit the damages there. But just the, the scale of damage that we can expect in that lowest emission scenario, I think, was, um, was, was pretty stark. Right. I think that's a useful, in a way, that's something we should explore a bit more, is the sort of the really tangible direct impacts for companies in terms of that physical exposure, as well as then the question marks for investors around what are feasible 
um, commitments to make in a kind of the reality of, of climate policy. So before we jump onto that, I want to ask you all just to, <laughs> in one word, uh, if you could describe your gut reaction to the report when you first read it. I have a feeling I know what Jeremy's answer is going to be. Something like expected or predictable or, or something like that. Jeremy, what was your reaction to the report? Oh, so a single a single word or <laughs> phrase. I would maybe I'll use two words: reality check. Great, Eva. I'll say furious. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, furious that we've known this for so long. We're still not doing enough, um, and uh, you know, furious and fearful for for the planet and in the personal capacity for for my children. So that was the the first the gut feeling that I had looking at the key messages. Yeah, absolutely. And Anna? Um, if I was going to pick one word, it would be unsurprised. And to kind of clarify that, it would be unsurprised by the urgency that was expressed. I was really pleased to see that some of the language used, you know, things like unequivocal, unprecedented, that need for immediate action, removes some of that wiggle room for policymakers and also provides um, a clear message to governments, industry, the media and the public um, around that urgency. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's really telling that for three specialists in this area, really, it's while you are obviously furious and, and, and fearful, that, that this is largely consistent with what we've been seeing. It's just it's been put together and packaged and made headlines in a way that for non-specialists might come as quite a, a surprise or, or a worry. And maybe, Jeremy, I was actually going to come to you next in terms of asking what the read across of this will be given this is all taking place right before COP26 in November, which is this huge politicized poli climate policy event. Does it have read across or how important well, do you think it is? Yeah, look, I mean, the read across, I mean, as, as Anna and Eva have said, is that it, if there was any doubt, but I don't think there has been doubt for a very long period of time, right? So it's not like you could say, oh, five years ago, this was expressed equivocally and, and now we're super clear that this is a bad thing. No, I mean, this has been clear for a very, very, very long time. But, but what it does is, is it means that the COP26 meetings will occur, occur in an environment where that reality is even starker, worse than was acknowledged a number of years ago or when the Paris Agreement was being negotiated. Um, and so that puts greater pressure on policymakers um, to make tangible and credible commitments. At the same time, I think the other, the other read across is that sometimes sort of choose my words carefully, right? There is an extremely worthy and important goal of radically reducing emissions to limit not just obviously the aggregate temperature changes, but all the various flow and effects from that. But equally, um, climate change is occurring. It's going to get worse and it's probably going to be even a bit worse than was anticipated for a given amount of emissions. What that also means is that, is that countries, governments are going to have to pour additional money into adaptation, right? So, so you can't pretend that this isn't coming down the pipeline, right? There's an inevitability, right? And so we can't focus all of our time and resources on transition-related questions, as important as they are, um, but because this report, what it really is 
about is the tragedy of the commons, right? It's the idea you've got a collective action problem that we still haven't been able to solve and we still don't really have viable mechanisms to do so in large part for political reasons, right? And to the extent that the, these are unlikely to be solved, right, um, that we are facing uh, uh, changes in our, in our environment and the way the planet operates, which aren't just matter for the environment, they matter for the economy, they manage better for biodiversity, every type of activity that occurs on the planet. And, and, and so things will have to be put in place to manage the fallout from that. So I think that's the other thing that's really important for me. Which I think in a way actually leads us, leads us neatly on to what it means for investors, right? Because it is the two sides of the coin. On the one hand, Assumedly, it's about what are realistic commitments to be making when you talk about, you know, addressing climate change in portfolios, what is a realistic commitment to make? And the other is, if you think that things are in reality getting worse and, and unlikely to, to be easily to arrest, it becomes, well, how do you then measure the challenges to companies? So maybe Eva, I know obviously you're at the front line of this for Aberdeen Standard Investments. Is that the kind of two sides of the coin, do you think, for investors when it comes to the what this really means for investors from the report's perspective? Yeah, I, I think um, what Jeremy said was spot on in terms of you have to not just focus on mitigation, but also adaptation. So you have to you know, choose how you allocate that capital in those both um, buckets, pretty much. But one of the things that is uh, going to be really tricky and we have to be honest and transparent about is that net zero 2050 alignment where we're seeing a lot of targets being set by investors and by, by companies, but a lot of them are on the basis that policymakers will move in this direction. And we're clearly seeing, and we've known this um, for a while, but the, the report strengthens this even more that we are far behind being on that trajectory. So what does this really mean? At what point do we say, actually, this is now not achievable anymore? So that's a real challenge of trying to be really ambitious and optimistic, but the, the reality that we're seeing um, and, the, and the policies that have been implemented are not supporting the achievement of those goals. Um, the other thing for me is just, it just strengthens the case for active engagement and where we can influence through active engagement with policymakers, um, on those urgent emission cuts and, and providing that policy certainty for capital allocation for, for investors and also for corporates. That's really critical. And um, before and during and after COP, um, that's an opportunity to just raise that um, and, and even more and have a voice heard there. And then finally, the third point, I think that focus on physical risks. And as I said earlier, we are already seeing these uh, today in many regions of the world, whether that's flooding or fires or drought. Um, and we need to understand how well the businesses and the assets we're investing in are prepared for those and how they're investing in adaptation. So I think we really need to have a good way of incorporating that into our thinking. And the report has highlighted the importance of that for investors um, even further. So that's a really, I think, good place then to say, okay, well, what are solutions, right? We don't want to be too doom and gloom. We don't want to be too kind of negative. Obviously, Assumedly, as, as in any market environment, there are always opportunities. So maybe the next natural question is, how, how are we as investors trying to understand this obviously very complex world where there are potentially lots of paths, some of which might get us to significant reductions in emissions and some of which won't? Yeah, so this is the reason why we have built the climate scenario framework that we have, right? 
this allows us to examine the implications of net zero pathways. It allows us to examine the implications of current policy. So effectively failure scenarios where all the risk, all the impact is, is, is really physical or most of it. And then, then the vast majority, the probability mass in between. I think one of the challenges in our industry has been that so much attention has been devoted to either extreme transition risk or extreme physical risk that all the likelihood in the middle effectively is, is often ignored analytically. And so our framework allows us to think, well, okay, yes, we need to understand what a net zero pathway looks like because actually many asset owners are setting these objectives whether they think that they're probable or not and we've got a responsibility to help them do that in a way that sort of maximises the benefit and the returns of, of their beneficiaries. Um, but equally, uh, other asset owners have different objectives, right? Just standard investors need to be able to take account of the true nature of climate risk and opportunity in their regular day-to-day -day investment decision-making and our framework allows us to do so, right? So, you know, the, the, this I think is, is, is very important because it means that you build frameworks, not just for the view of the world that you want to exist, right? Um, but, but, for the, but for the future that you think is likely, but where you can adapt that over time as new information comes to bear, right? So right now we are skeptical, you know, that, that, the, that the objectives of the Paris Agreement can be met, and right? So in our, in our mean and our average scenario, um, then we sort of see overshooting, which means you get quite a lot of physical and transitional risk as part of our analysis and the impact on firms. Um, but if, if policy change is either more rapid or technological change is more rapid, then we'll be able to incorporate that. Um, but it's definitely worth sort of bearing repeating. And right? in order to be on a net zero 2050 pathway, global emissions have to fall at around a 7% rate every single year between now and 2050. We couldn't even achieve that in 2020 during a pandemic, right? We shut down large parts of the global economy for many, many months, right? So when you're thinking about, again, about what I'm doing around sort of what's probable and how I'm taking that into account, right? That reality that we're sort of seeing, you know, is front and center. I think that's a really useful way to frame it, German. Obviously the climate scenario analysis that you, Eva and Anna have worked on provides that framework for investors, which can only be constructive and doesn't require, as you say, a belief system. You don't have to believe in one or the other in order to, to be able to assess your portfolios. But maybe I'm conscious on this so we've talked a lot about government policy, right, and, and the failures of government policy and the pressures they now face in light of this new report. But I'm keen to understand there are obviously other institutions that are talking a lot about climate change. And here I'm specifically thinking about the role of the courts and, and the role of central banks. I'm interested, Anna, as to whether you think that this report has any bearing on the outlook for those institutions to influence kind of the pressures that businesses face and, and indeed the governments face when it comes to climate change? Uh, yes, yeah, there's certainly been a, a general increase in, in litigation related to climate change over the last 15 years, many of which have, have captured media attention. 
And the past assessment reports have been extensively used in many of those cases. And what we also see is that, you know, with um, up upcoming COP26, with previous uh, international agreements like the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement, you saw a large uptick in litigation cases being brought following those, those international agreements also. Um, I think the urgency of the message in the new reports um, and the strength of the science and the language the report uses is very likely to trigger an increase in, in litigation, um, as well as strengthening those cases so that we could very well see an increase in the success of litigation when it is brought. Um, that could be cases brought against governments, so challenging um, where they set weak targets or where they're deemed not to be meeting their committed targets cases aiming to exert pressure on companies and potentially their investors to prevent future emissions, and compensation claims against both governments and corporates for, for damages sustained or the costs incurred by the need to adapt, for example. And I think the IPCC report and the associated science adds particular weight there. So a common barrier to litigation success has been the ability to establish the link between cause and effect. However, the report highlights the increased ability to attribute specific extreme events to human-induced climate change and therefore allows those experiencing that loss and damage from those events to bring cases against those governments and companies that are deemed responsible for that climate change. And the investors behind those activities, um, I think, cannot expect to remain immune from that litigation indefinitely. I think that's a, a really powerful message to end on. And overall, the whole, the whole episode, it's felt like there are some really powerful forces that are relevant to investors, not just in terms of kinds of commitments you make and how realistic they are, but also around the risks, the direct risks that this kind of climate change can create, both in terms of physical risk and litigation risk, as well as you know, change of government policy, which obviously we know has huge impact. So I really appreciate all of you coming on. Thank you so much, Jeremy, Eva and Anna for joining us today. As always to our listeners, if you have any comments on the discussion today, questions or ideas for future episodes, you can email us at macromatters at aberdeenstandard.com. In the meantime, we'll be back in two weeks. So please join us then. Please note that email is not a secure form of communication, so don't send any personal or sensitive information. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen Standard Investments. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns. Return projections are estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.